Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. So if you've got the scriptures with me, with you, with me, with you, with me, with us, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading from verse 11. I've actually got it in front of me on the iPad, but I just like reading from my paper Bible better. And he himself, this is Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son growing into a maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body is fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promoting the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Um, Let me tell you about some strangers. When we first bought our home, we own a home in Valley View, just in case you've seen our home in Prospect. We rent that house. Let me make it absolutely clear, just in case you're wondering what the Futures Fund is really going to. But we own a house... In Valley View. And uh, when we bought our first home uh, and you're, you're a young married couple and you're, you're just sort of dreaming about the future, but you don't really have a clue what it looks like, uh, we had our hopes of who our neighbours would be and they were not who we hoped they would be. Let's call them Johnny and Nat, not their real names. Uh, Nat steals from supermarkets. She doll bludges, justifies it. Um, the, by the way, there's going to be a lot of trigger points over the next couple of days because it's 2021, but I, I will say nothing with offence, okay? This is just the, the description of what it was like for me living next door. So Nat, Nat is Indigenous and she used that as a club to justify doll bludging. Uh, used to get absolutely hammered at all hours of the night and would scream drunkenly into the night. When she's sober, she's actually all right, but she wasn't sober anywhere near as much as we would like her to be. Johnny, her partner, down in his luck, hired labourer. He's about 10 years older than me. And he's one of those guys that just always seems to be losing in life. Like things just do not work for Johnny. Uh, One time he was talking about parenting and about um, how he doesn't know how to be a parent to his daughter. And and he turned to me and he's like, I wish you were my dad. Which sounds funny, um, but he's, he's 10 years older than me. It wasn't funny. It was tragic. Really, really sad. And this is what used to happen. Um... Johnny would come and be at home with Nat and they'd be okay for a bit. And then Nat would start getting drunker and drunker and start abusing him verbally and screaming at him and belittling him and putting him down time and time and time again. And she would just do it to the point that he would eventually snap. He wasn't really a verbal guy. And eventually he would snap and he would hit her. And she would call the cops and get him thrown in jail. And so at that point, he's in jail for a couple of months and then he comes out of jail And then he's got nowhere else to go, so he goes right back in. And the cycle continues and continues. 
So for us, uh, what happened was our lives became this cycle of not only hearing this next door, but in the middle of the night, the cops knocking on our door became a very common occurrence. Like you'd think it would be a scary thing or intimidating. It's intimidating once after that, you're just sort of like, what? They're next door. Okay, don't ask us what's going on. It, it ceases to be intimidating after a while. Uh, Johnny would sleep on a bed in our garage sometimes. We'd just put up a cot for him. And uh, their child was eventually taken away. It's really, really tragic. And these people were, were absolute strangers to us. They were different in just about every conceivable way. They were not particularly pleasant people, but they were our neighbours. What do Christians do when strangers are neighbours? Let's put that over here for now. Let me tell you a different story about different people. Let's call them Chelsea and Sam. <laughs> they, they were part of a church I used to lead quite recently. And uh, I, I saw that I used to see them every week. I saw them every week. But I, I remember thinking, uh, I was like, ah, oh, these, these seem like nice people. I don't really, I don't really get them. But I don't really know what wise and what makes them tick. But it's all right. I like them. But I don't, I don't really know much about them. I don't necessarily know where their faith is truly at. I don't know much about their lives. I, I, know, I know the basics, but that's it. They were acquaintances. They were, they were neighbors, in effect. And then another guy, let's call him for the sake of argument, Tex got me to lead a life group uh, in my home. And so Lucy and I will lead, yeah, we'll start with this now. Lucy and I would lead, lead this life group together and Sam and Chelsea are in it and suddenly they're in my home every week. And, and when that happens, it's different. So they're, they're bringing snacks and they're talking about buying Scottish peerages and then Instagram's picking it up and trying to sell me Scottish peerages. And then they're talking about the beauty of the Port, Port Elliot Bakery Donut while while they collectively weigh about the same as a Port Elliot Bakery donut. Like, I'd, I'd never understood where the donuts went. <laughs> and then uh, it's a bit more visible for me where the donuts go. But then they talk about their hopes and their dreams and their, their fears and their struggles and their family and their study and their work and their friends and their love and their, and their deepest prayer needs and their future together. And then we would read scripture together and we would talk about God. And I, I heard talk, Sam talk with deep conviction about who God is and, and who he is in his life. And I heard Chelsea unpack the Bible and talk about what that is doing to her and how doing the Bible reading plan was transforming her relationship with God. And so then we'd, we'd talk on Instagram. And well, I mean, Chelsea and I would talk on Instagram. Sam doesn't know what Instagram is. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't care. And, and we talk on our life group thread and we share prayer points and you begin to have in-jokes and you'd, you'd eat, you share meals together. And suddenly, without really realizing it, they're not neighbors anymore. And the exact moment that the penny dropped for me was when I was talking to Jen before bed one time. She just kind of stops me wearily and she's like, Mike, can you just stop talking about Chelsea and Sam for a minute? I was like, what do you mean? She's like, you talk about them all the time. And of course I do. I love them <laughs> because they're not neighbors anymore. They're family. They're the family of God to me. And so when, when they got engaged, Chelsea sent me a message, and not, to, not to ask me to marry them. That might still be coming. I don't know. Um, but, but just to let me celebrate with them and share in their joy. And, and I just deeply joyful of it. And then Sam gets baptized the other week and 
you know, Denny's preparing to pray and I just kind of rip the microphone away from her and start praying for him because I just, I just wanted to pray for him myself, this deep, passionate love that I have for this man who is family to me. Neighbours had become family. And this comes from life on life, from opening up your home to each other. You can't just click and make people family. You've got to share life together. You've got to ask and answer the deep questions of life together. You've got to do what Jen said on Sunday and bear one another's burdens in joy and celebration and in grief as well. When things are going well and when things are going poorly. And, and, and all that being said, this was not like this deep, complicated system we put in place. We just hung out. We, we, and, and we're not best friends. We're family. It's deeper. Best, best friends are both wider and deeper in different ways. We're the family of God. And so we bear one another's burdens, we pray for each other, we lead each other to God through Scripture because we're the church. That's what we are. That's who we are. That's what we have become. So the theme for this weekend is is radically ordinary hospitality. Radically ordinary hospitality. And it comes from a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. Excellent, excellent book about Christian hospitality. And, And what I... You know, this is going to touch on all four of our core values. We're all about Jesus. We're all about people. We're all about being real. We're all about being generous. And it's going to teach us, I hope, a bit more about what it means to be the church. And so I want to talk about two different rhythms. One is how we be the church as the church. And one is how we be the church in our homes scattered. One's on Sunday. One's on Monday, if you want to put it that way. Because we are in a time of deep cultural disconnection. Deep social isolation. I talk about that quite a lot. Deep connection with disconnection with other people and deep disconnection as the people of God. But I want to propose that God gives us these two different shifts in community that he wants us to think about. The first, which I'm going to talk about tomorrow, is when strangers become neighbors. Strangers become neighbors. Okay, so this is a this is a non-judgmental community. It's an exercise in neighborhood hospitality. It's an evangelism edge. It's honesty without force or coercion. It's just sharing meals and creating margin in time and overcoming barriers. This is Christian kindness. It is welcoming the stranger. It is doing what God did for us. This is what it says in Leviticus and basically throughout all of Scripture. You shall treat the stranger who rests with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The second movement from strangers to neighbours is from neighbours to family. And this is raw. This is life-on-life community stuff. This is opening our homes with almost no reservations, sharing life in all its mess. It's not going overboard with the cleanup before they come over. It's actually bearing burdens together. It's praying. It's reading Scripture together. It's knowing one another. It's breaking bread. It's drinking wine. It's long, deep conversations. It's scriptural friendships, deep, deep friendship. It's Christian sisterhood and brotherhood. It's welcoming neighbours into our family. It is what God did for us. Both of these shifts, strangers to neighbours, neighbours to family, are what God has done for us. And this is the call of the church. And I want to talk about this because I just think we, as a a people in general, you guys are in the top 1% of this in, in a good way. Uh, people in general, we underestimate just how deeply important it is to gather as the church. Um, a lot of the time we treat it as like something we have to do, not something we get to do. 
not something we, we are permitted and overjoyed to do. And I want to talk about that, not just in Sundays, but in Mondays, because that's what Sundays invade. That's the vision of radically ordinary hospitality. Strangers become neighbours, neighbours become the family of God. It's a vision of the kingdom of God. This is how we know what the vision of the kingdom of God looks like, according to the Bible. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. After this I looked, this is John, uh, the Apostle John speaking. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this, and we're not going into a series on Revelation. But a few key points. The scope of the vision, too many people to number. The multiculturalism of the vision, all tribes, all peoples, all languages. And the object of the vision, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the object of our praise and worship. There, there are these, there's a scope of the vision that it's too big for us to fully comprehend. There's a diversity in that vision in that every tribe and tongue is welcome. And then there's the object of our affection at the center, Jesus Christ on the throne. This is the vision, the ultimate destiny of the church. Now, this is what the Bible says about the church. It talks about it as a picture of heaven. You know, we see its flaws. And, you know, if you read a news, I have yet to read a news article that says, Local church encouraging people in faith, love, and friendship, you know. Local, local church feeds the poor. That doesn't tend to happen. That doesn't mean the other stuff shouldn't get reported on. I'm just saying that you're probably not getting the full picture of the church in the media. But this is what the Bible said about it. Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against it and made it his primary vehicle for mission. That's us. This bunch of schmucks in this room, like I'm probably not you, just me, I'm sure. We are the vehicle for mission. God put his mission in our hands. Every time you've ever felt vaguely insecure, consider that and you'll get feel way worse. Like, like really? Me? That's the best you could do? And God's like, I didn't say it was the best I could do. I said it's what I chose. That's important. Paul called it one body under Christ at the head. We are all united in Christ. That's who the church is. And Paul said that Christ suffered on its behalf. That is, the head of the church suffered for the church. We talked about that a little last night. Peter called it a spiritual house being built up on spiritual stones and said, basically, it's like these carpet pavers here. Each one together is not much, but put together, they form this incredible tapestry that builds up together, founded on the chief cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. And then in the book of Acts, Luke begins to describe not what it should be, but how it starts to play out. And he says, they all gathered together. They broke breads in each other's homes. They visited the temple every day, enjoying the favor of God. And people were joined to their number day after day after day. And it's that vision that catches us every time we wonder about the church and feel frustrated and go, ah, didn't love the worship set this week. Ah, Mike preached 30 to 40 minutes too long this week, you know. Every time we, we get caught up on our own preferences, it's the vision of what the church can be. And it's called to be that brings us home. So why do we take it for granted then? Uh, Mostly because we misunderstand what it's for. 
Let me just rant on radical individualism for two minutes, and then I promise I'll stop. <laughs> yeah, three people in this room are delighted. Everyone else is like, oh, it's, it's never two when he says two. <laughs> so basically, there are, there are two broad types of cultures in the world. There are Eastern cultures which lean towards a collectivist mindset, and there's Western cultures that lean towards an individualist mindset. And so in Eastern cultures, they ask the question, does my good serve the good of the family or the good of the tribe or the good of the nation? In Western cultures, we ask the question, does the nation serve my good? Now, that sounds like very bad when I put it that way. It's actually not that one is good and one is bad. Both of them have their strengths and weaknesses, right? Yeah, and you see that. They're not, it's not that one's good and one's bad. But we just have to be aware that in the West, in Australia, that is our primary cultural ethic. Times about a million. Everything, like it is so deep. It's like being in the matrix. It is so deep, we don't even realize how deep it is. That we have to realize that we are being formed in a way in which we're just asking the question again and again and again, what's in it for me? Even when we're trying to serve other people, often we're asking that question, what's in it for me subconsciously? I'm not going to go further down that line because we don't need to hold a mirror up to our own narcissism today. Uh, but the concept of church has to do with a radical, sacrificial community radical sacrificial community, while individualism puts us as the hero of our own story. And so Mark Sayers offers these seven hallmarks of radical individualism, which are up behind you. The first is that the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. That's the highest good. That traditions, this is the second one, traditions, religions, receive wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict that individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. The third is that the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Now, you guys are in an interesting position because I would say Gen Ys and Gen Zs are the first who have had to stop and go, honestly, I don't think the world is improving. Um, until that point, I think we, we were all able to believe this hype. The idea there is that technology, in particular the internet, will motor this progression towards utopia. The fourth is that the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest towards individual freedom. So hear me, not tolerance for the person, but for their quest towards individual freedom. And any deviation from this ethic then is dangerous and must not be tolerated. Therefore, yeah, that's all right. Uh, the fifth point is that humans are inherently good. The sixth is that large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. And number seven, that forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. So this is the framework for the world we live in right now. And it's pretty accurate. Like you can appreciate or not appreciate it, but is it accurate? Yeah, yeah, it's, it, this is the world we live in. In the end, the most obvious problem with radical individualism is this. A stress on my rights and my preferences overshadows my responsibility for the common good. So this freedom then becomes negative. It's, it's radical because it assumes that our good is the highest good and that any challenge to that is oppression. But it, it's funny because when we stop and talk about it and we say, oh, do you believe that your personal good is the highest good? Most people wouldn't answer yes to that, really. They would go, no, 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 it's, it's, it's not just me, it's bigger than me. But when you ask them to make decisions based on that ethic, the decisions speak for you. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote about that, and then I'm stopping. He said, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, 
but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Now, this is why I'm talking about radical individualism. Because radical individualism is destroying our capacity to be the church. Let's, let's have a think through some of those points. If individual freedoms are the highest good, what happens when our freedoms clash with other people's freedoms? So right now in America, you've basically got a situation where if you're a Democrat and a Republican, not only do you not agree with one another, you despise one another. Thankfully, we're not quite there in Australia yet, but we can get there. If received wisdom is restrictive, how do we learn from others? And in particular, how do we read the Bible? If self-expression is the highest social ethic, how do we dwell in unity the way that the Bible calls us to? If external authority is rejected, how do we allow God to speak to us at all? And that's why this is destroying our capacity to be the church. Now, this is not about homogeneity. Not about everyone being and sounding the same. The picture in Revelation is not about everyone being and sounding the same. It's about unity. It's about genuine love and sacrificial service of the other. Now, that story I told right at the start, I'll, I'll finish that off for you tomorrow. But there's, there's a sense of the other when we're confronted with somebody so different in their behaviors and their actions, but God calls us to lay down our life for those people. In fact, again and again, one of Jesus' most provocative teachings was love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is the vision for us as the church, not to come and sit in here on a Sunday, but to pray for our enemies. Okay, so what should it be? How does it actually work its way out in the church? Well, you've probably worked out that in a, in a church setting, uh, again, I'll talk about the home tomorrow. But as the gathered people of God, there are, these, there are these two main ways we do it at Encounter. And they roughly reflect the two key words for church in the Greek in the Bible. The first is ekklesia. Everybody say ekklesia. Look at you guys. Ekklesia. The ekklesia is the called out gathering of God. The called out ones. I love that. These are people rubbing shoulders with people they don't know, don't agree with, maybe don't even like. But we gather together on purpose for worship, and it's the worship and the object of our worship that unites us. We gather in unity around the worship of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason we got you guys to move around and meet people and sit next to people you don't know is so that you can experience the ecclesia in truth. Because, because what we think we want is a small group of people who we know really well. And we do want that. I'll get to that. But what we desperately need as well is the diversity of God around us. And it tends to be, if you are in this room and you're an introvert, you don't like the ecclesia. And if you're in this room and you're an extrovert, you're going to struggle with the koinonia that I talk about in a minute. Because one requires real depth and knowing people deeply. And sometimes extroverts like to know a lot of people at a shallow level. But the other one involves actually opening yourself up to new experiences and meeting new people which is something that introverts don't like to do. And guess what? You're all wrong, which makes me very popular. The purpose of the ecclesia, the purpose of Sunday church, is to have all of us neighbors in one place. We all become in one place. It refocuses us that the central tenet, the purpose of the Christian life, is to worship. We set aside Sunday as the Lord's Day, not because there's nothing else good to do on a Sunday, 
but because we want to gather together in unity and in worship. And that builds something in us. It builds our spirits. It builds our character. It builds sacrifice. To love the Lord our God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And through that, what do you do? You love your neighbour as yourself. That's what happens in the ecclesia. Gathered worship interrupts the pagan rhythms of our lives that threaten to disrupt our love for God. Because the object of our affections has to do with our time. So when we set time aside to be in the ecclesia, we are saying again, even if I've had a rough week with my spiritual disciplines, even if I've missed out on the koinonia, at least I'm here in church. I'm here in the ecclesia. I am one of the called out ones this morning. I'm interrupting the rhythms of my life that center around me, around Netflix and the food and Uber Eats and everyone delivering their notifications to me at my preferred time. Instead, I am giving up this portion of time, which is a sacrifice, and it's growing me. That's the ecclesia. That's why we do church on Sundays. That's why we bump in and bump out every week. Every week. Because it gives us that space for unity among diversity. That's why sometimes you'll meet people and you'll be like, oh, I really know who this person is. Can I tell you somebody? I did that too once. I was was at a church event, and we were actually, it was actually a camp. And it was like a Saturday night, it's like a dance kind of thing, and everybody's dancing around. And I bumped into this girl. I was like, ah, I know you to look at, but now we've turned as if we're going to dance together. And we gave each other an awkward look, and we turned away, and then I married her. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> Brant would marry people that quick back then. He didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> But seriously, it's like we're in this space and it's kind of awkward. And if you know me, like, you know, I'm an extrovert by profession, but I'm an introvert by nature. I would rather be with a book than with you guys. Sorry, I just would. (laughs) Okay, fine. It depends on the book. (laughs) So for me, sometimes it is awkward, but the Ecclesia is so good and it's so good for me. And to meet people and to hear their story and discover who they are is part of inviting them into the story of God deeper. So that's the ecclesia. Gives you space to worship. Gives you space to use your spiritual gifts. You're not meant to come here and consume. You're meant to come here and use your gifts. That doesn't mean you're on team every week, but it means if you're here and God says, do this, you do it. Means that if you see somebody that needs talking to, you can talk to them. Lisa, who's on the welcome team at Encounter? Everybody is on the welcome team at Encounter Church. I'll let either, hey? (laughs) Michael did the same thing the other week. Anyway, funny. Everybody, everybody is on the welcome team at Encounter Church. Nobody is left behind. Nobody sits by themselves. Like, okay, there's a difference between somebody you know sitting by themselves and they give you a nod like, keep moving. And somebody you don't know who's standing in the corner on their phone, which is code for nobody's talking to me, so I'm going to the only people who will. We do not do that. We die to ourselves so that they might live for Christ. We die to our own preferences. Now, if you're in, the, not everybody has been in this place for a long time. Like some of you guys have not been around Encounter very long. But if you've been around for longer than six months, and, and frankly, like, that's being generous for me. If you've been around for longer than six months, you this is your house. 
You welcome people in. Don't wait for people to come to you. This is now your spiritual home. You need to invite people in because if you don't, no one else will. That, that was one of the really interesting things that we came back from COVID and we'd had a whole bunch of you guys who had started watching online and everybody came back and was looking around like, who's going to welcome me? Because there were so many new people that they didn't realize they were all new or we'd had people that had just started before COVID. You get the picture. But now, as we're entering into this new season in church, and God is stirring up new things in the church. He's stirring up new things in the world. We've got to ask ourselves, what does it mean for me today to lay down my life for the other? It means setting aside every Sunday. You pick a service, I don't care. But setting aside every Sunday. It means looking for the other and going, where are they? Who is not connecting? Who is not being spoken to? Who is not being drawn in? That's the vision of the ecclesia. That, this is the essential part of being the people of God welcoming the stranger. It's why, by the way, Christians are pro-refugee, but that's another story. When you turn up to church on Sunday, you aren't going to church. You are re-centering your life on the worship of God amongst other people who you may like or may not. You are sitting under the biblical teaching of leadership with spiritual authority. You are submitting your heart and mind to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. You're laying your life down in sacrificial service to your sisters and brothers. You're acknowledging and utilizing the gifts God has put in you. And you're doing it all among people you may not know yet, but are your sisters and brothers in Christ. There is a cost to that, but it is a cost that is worth paying. That's creating the ecclesia. Now let's talk about the koinonia. Everybody say koinonia. Koinonia, the, the, the definition that gets used most often is fellowship. But I just think, I just, I hate that word. I, I just don't think it's a word humans use anymore. So this, it's a friendship. It's an intimate, participative friendship. So it's, there's a depth to this. So if the ecclesia is called out to be the people of God, so you're in your homes and you're called out to gather together now with the people of God, exactly what's happening. The koinonia is more like now we're going back to our homes and gathering in them as the people of God in smaller groups we call them life groups, but you, you get the gist. Now, on a Sunday, there's only so deep we can get. Part of the reason I love a vibe like camp is I can actually riff a bit. I don't, I don't have to feel like I'm preparing something for the stranger who walks through the door for the first time and really does need that impression and an understanding of who we are. Um, but on a camp, we can just we can relax a bit. The family's all together. It's a family meeting. It's good. And, and there's only so deep we can do, go on a Sunday. The diversity that we love and cherish on a Sunday serves as a barrier for vulnerability. There's too many people. It's not about ethnicity. It's about the, the volume of people. There are too many people to, get, to be honest and intimate with all at once. If you try that, it's just nobody's paid for this therapy. They're just all enduring it. So you don't, you don't want that. So we need the second rhythm. That's where life groups come in. One where we, the people of God enter each other's homes and lives. Now, the life group at Encounter, we center around five purposes. Scripture, prayer, accountability, community, and eating. Okay, those five things. which for, <laughs> And that forms the acronym SPACE, which reminds us that we always need to have space in our life groups to invite others in. Scripture, prayer, accountability, community, and eating. Okay, so let's, let's just pull that apart for a minute. People reading Scripture together. You will grow deeply in relationship with people when you read the Scriptures together and pray over them together and invite God to speak to you together. 
are so, so powerful. I cannot emphasize that enough. When you read the Scriptures together, you are, you are unified in how God is being allowed to speak to you through His Word. And then we pray together. And most of you would have felt this. When you pray for somebody or somebody prays for you, your relationship is deeper straight away. It is such a, an expression of vulnerability and intimacy. I, I try every week, again, as an introvert, I hate this, but I call our new people who put in a Connect card. I call them and I say, hey, it's, it's really great that you put in a Connect card this week. Um, I'm Mike, didn't get a chance to talk to you, or did get a chance, or whatever. And I, I start talking to them. And then at the end, I, and I keep it as light as I can because people don't need to be freaked out. And then at the end, I say, is there anything I can pray for you about? And for, if people are from another church and they're exploring this church, yeah, they go, oh, cool, and they tell me. But for, if people are not experienced with church, it blows them away. They're like, oh, you, you would do that? It's like, yeah, of course. Hey, it's, yeah, that's, I mean, they pay me to do it, but other people would do it. <laughs> <laughs> the details will be up behind you. <laughs> <laughs> But any of us would do that. It just takes that one step to go, can I pray for you? And 99 times out of 100, people will say yes. Or they'll say, oh, I don't know if I have anything to pray for, but thank you. Like they'll, At the very least, you'll be thanked for it. It's, it's something to be received with thanksgiving and gratitude. And it's love. So we pray for people. That builds relationship. We're accountable to one another. Okay. This is where we confess our sins to each other. Because... Not because we want to beat ourselves up over how bad we are, but because we want to refocus on Jesus. And sin is effectively anything that drags us back from the worship of God and sets our attention and affection on anything else. It's disordered desires. So there may be things in your life that you need to repent of, and other people are like, really? That doesn't seem like a very big deal. And you just go, well, it actually is for me. It's a disordered desire in my life. You might need to, uh, you might need to repent of being too attached to your father. You're like, I am too focused on my father's approval for me. And somebody else might be like, okay, is that a problem? And you go, yes, for me it is. For you, it is. That's cool. For me it is. That's why Paul gives that wisdom about uh, vegetarianism. <laughs> it's not really about vegetarianism. It's about meat sacrifice to idols. But there's, there's that, that line that's it's kind of funny where it says, those who are weak eat, weak, eat only vegetables. But what he's talking about... <laughs> Read it. <laughs> I love you, Sam. <laughs> but, but that's not actually what it's about. It's, it's not about the, the weakness of choosing a vegetarian lifestyle. It's about people who have converted out of a pagan culture where the meat was sacrificed to idols. So when the meat is put before them that was bought in the marketplace, it immediately draws them back in the ritual of what it meant to be a pagan. And so they ate vegetables only because they were rejecting that form of alternate worship. Do, do you hear that? So it's actually, it's actually a form of strength. But Paul's point was, yeah, whatever, eat meat, eat your vegetables, do whatever you want. But some people can only eat vegetables in that situation because of that, honor that, support them, strengthen them, walk together with them. That's, that's what the uh, koinonia is. That we, we pray for one another. I said that uh, community, just coming together. But the eating part, don't underestimate the eating part. What's the last thing that Jesus gave to his disciples before he left? He gave them the gift of communion. Gather together around a meal, break bread, drink wine, remember me. 
Why? It's not just about what communion means. It's about the act of eating and breaking bread together. You share a meal with somebody. You go deeper. You can ask questions over food that you can't ask at other times. So when we do this, we begin to build close Christian friendships. And I've had lots of people that said, look, I wasn't at church for a while, but I've started coming back to church because I know I need more Christian friends. I need people who are are going to help me follow Jesus and are going to steer me with it. Like on a Sunday, I will tell you how to follow Jesus, but then you've got to go away and work it out. And that's what life groups are for, to get alongside you and go, I'm going to help you follow Jesus, but there's a catch. You've got to help me. You've got to bear my burden too. It doesn't go one way. This is the beauty of a life group. And so we open up. We truly, deeply open up to people. Sometimes we cry. Adelaide, do we sometimes cry? We sometimes cry. Adelaide at all times cries. We, we confess our sins to one another. We receive the forgiveness of God. We laugh together and mourn together, which means that we, we do, like I said, when Chelsea and Sam got engaged, I celebrated. And there's been other times in their lives where I've mourned because I love them. That's what bearing one another's burdens is. And we pray for one another. We lift them up and we strengthen them in prayer. Uh, we hear the promises of God spoken over our lives. We receive the forgiveness of God. That's the koinonia. Brought together and deeper in intimate, participative friendship. If your life group doesn't look like this, you need to be involved in changing it. Not changing life groups, transforming the one you're in. Transform the culture. That's you. It's up to you. If that's what you want, the true family of God, because that's what God's calling you to. Not just, that, like, thank you for listening, but it's not, that's not just what He wants you to do. He wants you to go and be the church. The church is a people. That's why the Future Fund is investing in people before we look to a building, because the church is primarily not a space you are in, but a people you become. That's what God is about. That's what He's working through us. And so that's his call to you. So if life groups do not draw one another deeply into the presence of God through the way we learn from and love one another, they become a burden instead of a desire. And if the Sunday church service does not declare the name of Jesus above all things, offer salvation for all people and worship together, it becomes an obligation instead of a joy. I would dare to say that most of our life groups are pretty good and our Sunday services do that. So if you're feeling them as a burden or an obligation, what's going on in your heart? What's the great desire of your heart? Because God is calling you to be a part of the church. And by the way, for, the, for those of you in e-youth, there's no such thing as a junior disciple. You're just a disciple. You are just as powerful and potent and capable as every other person in this room. You have it in you now. You're not a junior disciple. You're just a disciple. We love it. You love to see it. So the primary way that we participate in these things is we examine our hearts and we come with a posture of honest worship. So do we come out of obligation or to consume or out of worship? That's the, that's the question. So last little bit. And Ben, you guys can come back up, I suppose. You're welcome. There is, there, is a, there is a new wine moment happening in our church and in our world. And, and sometimes, right, as a, as a preacher, you get up and say that and you just kind of try and get everyone excited. Like, 
Just be honest. Take it behind the fourth wall. Sometimes we just want you to be excited about stuff that's going on. I Spiritually right now, though, there, there is a shift. Uh, there's a shift happening in our church. It's one of the reasons we're so desperate to have a, a camp so that the community could come together in one place to grow closer in bonds and intimacy and friendship so that as, as we continue to grow and be transformed by whatever extraordinary thing God's calling us into, we're ready. But there's also a, a, a shift going on in the world, I think. Um, you know, I touched on this last night. 2019 is not coming back. The future is going to look very different. That's okay. Every, every generation has been afraid of the change that came before. If you tasted the old wine, you don't want the new wine. That's, that's how it goes. But there's a new moment. So how do, we, how do we actually become the church a bit better? Just, just a few, a few little, little things. The first is that the church, oh, actually, I'll come back to that bit. Three things. The first is that you reject competing affections. Everything in this world is vying for the affection of your heart. But the primary affection of your heart should be Jesus Christ. Above my spouse, yes. Above my children, yes. Jesus is the primary affection of our heart. Because when Jesus is the affection of our hearts, he enlarges and enables our love to love other people better. But when somebody else is the affection of our heart, we drain them like a bad iPhone battery and then get worried and, one, and upset at them for not standing up to the saviour complex we have placed on them. You can't do that. Jesus must be the desire of your heart if you are going to honestly love people the way you desire to love them. So reject any competing affections for your heart. Identify them. Kill them. The second thing is live as the body. Play your part and help others play theirs. So play your part. If you are this kind of person that battles with insecurity, I'm with you and I very much understand you. But we need you. We need you to play your part. In season, right, there are different seasons. Like if you've just given birth, like maybe lie in the hospital bed for a couple of days, you'll be okay. It's all right. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Like there, there are seasons, but we need you to play your part, not to fill a roster, but because the body is less without you. We need you to play your part. And we need you to help others to play theirs. So, yeah, let's just leave that there. And the, the third point I want to make, and I'm going to sum it up, is that we embrace difference when it's centered on Jesus. So Jesus calls these 12 disciples. Judas didn't go so well. But the other 11, the other 11 come from this disparate backgrounds. And I want to talk about two we don't talk about very much. That's Simon and Matthew, not Simon Peter, Simon. Simon was known as Simon the Zealot. If you know what zeal means, it basically means passion. And so Simon was the most passionate of the disciples. But he was also a zealot, capital Z, which means he came from a sect in Jewish culture who believed that the way to see the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, come back was effectively to undermine the Romans through warfare, guerrilla warfare. He was a violent man at heart. You did not become a zealot unless you were a man of violence against Rome. Now, Matthew, different kettle of fish. Matthew was a tax collector. He was a Jew who worked for the Romans. Very, very wealthy. Tax collectors in that time were famous for skimming off the top into their own pockets. Uh, read the story of Zacchaeus sometime in Luke. You'll read a bit more about that. So Matthew is this guy who made his income working for the Romans. 
And Simon is this guy who spent his entire focus on despising the Romans and everyone who supported them. These two worldviews could not have been more different. And Jesus calls them together in koinonia fellowship, in intimate friendship, along with fishermen and mystics and people who will stab him in the back. And he calls them family. That's the vision of the family of God. It's discomforting, but it's deep, and it is true, and it is the balm, the healing balm that the world needs. This is not a competing vision for the world. It is the vision for the world. We don't like to give absolute statements very much, but it is. And it's centered around an idea of cruciform community. Where the deeper you go, the closer you get to the cross of Christ. The closer to Jesus you get. The further you go into this community, the more you open yourself up, you allow your scars to be ripped away and examined and prodded, not because people hate you or or want want to look at them out of interest, but to go, are you sure that scar's meant to be there? And the more that happens, the more vulnerable, the more layers you take off and allow people to open up we are drawn closer to the cross of Christ where we find nothing but grace, redemption, and hope. That's the vision of the church. Let me pray and then we're going to worship and finish. God on the cross where God died, we saw our hopes and dreams and possibilities come alive. Through your sacrifice, Jesus, you were in very nature God. You didn't see it as something to be grasped or grabbed or hoped for. You emptied yourself, made yourself nothing. In fact, you took on the form of a servant. You took on the likeness of humankind. You made yourselves like us. so that we might become like you. And God, at this moment, as we enter worship or continue in worshiping, as we step out into camp and continue to love life and and build community, Lord, would you help us to be more like you, that cruciform community, gathered around the cross of Christ, celebrating resurrection life in each other, seeing hope in every person. Would you give us the courage to cross over and meet someone new, to encourage them, to lift them up? Would you give us the depth to look inside our own hearts and to know what we need to share with others? Would you give us eyes of love and grace to see the needs of others, and cross the room to them. And we just center all of this around the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. 
To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.